everyone, to the first official episode of Criticast. Today we are joined by Noah of SMB Reviews. Say hi, Noah. Hello, everyone. And Kyle of Track by Track. Hey, everybody. Yeah, today, guys, we're going to be talking about the legendary Pink Floyd album from 1979, The Wall. But before we get started with talking about uh, the Pink Floyd album, let me just ask you guys, how are you guys doing today or this week, and how was your Christmas and New Year. Well, you know, after Christmas, anybody who's a music fan has probably got a whole bunch of, uh, you know, cool stuff they got for Christmas that was music related. And, you know, in the chaos of the holiday, you don't really have as much time to enjoy some of that new stuff that you got. So that's one of the things this weekend is uh, going through some of the CDs that I got for Christmas. I got a couple of really cool music books that I finally got to sit down and start looking at. So um, it's kind of nice that now that Christmas and New Year's is over. We can kind of relax a bit mm-hmm. and enjoy the, the, the music again, have the time for it. How about you, Noah? Uh, I'm the same way, but my big fallout has been with working on lists. I've <laughs> the, the, the pressure of doing lists and, and listening to everything again and finalizing it all definitely has made it so that I'm listening to about the same 20 or so albums over and over. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I randomly decided I'm going to go through Taylor Swift's catalog of all people. Um, been listening through all of her stuff again. Um, but yeah, that I'm kind of in the same boat just for a different reason. So yeah, as we said before, guys, we are going to be talking about the wall by Pink Floyd. So to start off this discussion, um, Noah, you went second last time, so you can go first this time. Um, just give a summary of some of your main thoughts um, about this album. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, I think that this album, for me personally, I've always found this to be one of Pink Floyd's most intriguing albums. And if I was asked to say my favorite, I would say The Wall. Um, I've loved it, and it's the one that I've been most invested in, in its story and its themes. Um, I absolutely love this album uh just to give a brief synopsis for for those who aren't as familiar with the album the album is primarily talking about a a man our character who's pink uh and his struggles with with different things in his life that made him cut himself out from the outside world and then his struggle to tear down that wall and i think that this album works so incredibly well at telling that narrative um I think that there's so much beauty in it. And we even see him fighting on whether he really wants to come out because he's finding, finding peace in that torture of being isolated. Mm. I think that that, that lonely isolation is is perfect. Um, And I've loved every second of this album. Mm. So Kyle, uh, how about you go? So I think that uh, one of the things that I find really intriguing about the wall is it goes beyond just uh, the album itself because of course you do have the film uh, that goes along with that you have the the original concerts that they staged for it uh, which were only performed in four cities because it was such a, a massive undertaking to do a live performance of the wall when Pink Floyd first created it uh, and then on top of that you have the the internal band politics and the things that were happening to Pink Floyd as the members were starting to uh, more and more fight amongst themselves. And Roger Waters was taking such a strong uh, leadership role uh, in the band, uh, which wasn't sitting well with with most of the other 
mm-hmm. most of the other band members, David Gilmore in particular. And so I, I think that uh, it's really interesting to everything that Noah just described uh, is, it, you know, put that then in the context of, you know, but who is Pink really? Is Pink Roger Waters? Is, is that his, is he kind of projecting himself into that character? And so if you know some of the backstory on on how Roger kind of came to create the story uh, behind the wall, um, it it was his response to what he saw himself becoming. Uh, You hear this this famous story of how Roger Waters uh, was performing at a Pink Floyd concert, and he had gotten so jaded and bitter about uh, his stardom and and the way that uh, the fans were were treating them uh, that he he spit in the face of a fan in in the front row. And after he did that, he was so shocked by his own behavior. And he thought, what am I becoming here? Uh, And, and that led to him thinking about those whole concepts of, am I becoming isolated? Am I, am I building these, these walls around myself? Uh, And and what does that mean? And so a lot of those personal things uh, are, are what, kind of came to to be the story of the wall and of course um roger's own backstory with the death of his father in the war uh plays a significant part in that uh so the, there's a lot of those autobiographical elements uh that i think it's important to take into context as well when we when we think about the wall it's a very very personal album for roger waters in particular yeah and like i i definitely agree with what you both are saying and like you can definitely feel the emotion, I think, in this album. And one of the things I had like written down to point out, uh, probably one of the main things I do want to point out, is how much this album packs a punch in every way. I always forget how good this album is. I always see it as like, I mean, that's like my third favorite album by them. I don't like it as much as maybe Dark Side or Animals or even sometimes Wish You Were Here. But then I come back to it and I just really in love with it. And like, just it's got the classic hits on. It's got "Comfortably Numb," "Another Brick in the Wall," Part Two, "In the Flesh," "Mother Hate You," um, all very classic songs that are almost quintessential rock songs at this point. But then it has so many tracks that I think a lot of people who haven't listened to the full album don't know like how much good songs they are. There's "Goodbye Blue Sky," "One of My Turns," uh, "Run Like Hell," "Vera," "Young Lust," "The Show Must Go On." And these are all like such great tracks that I think I wish more people knew about, but like I always fall in love with them when I hear them coming. I think what's interesting um, when you when you think about it and the songs, one of the things that I, I struggle with, and of course, you know, all of us do album reviews, um, is that more than more than most other bands, I think Pink Floyd is really an album band. Mm. That, that they're, yes, they write great songs, but I think they're absolutely one of these acts that you really need to listen to the albums as a whole mm-hmm. and, and not and not really break it down. So, you know, Pink Floyd has a couple of different um, quote-unquote greatest hits collections. There's, uh, you know, Echoes, I think, is one of them, and um, collection of great dance songs. I never listen to those because oh, yeah. if I want to hear Pink Floyd, I want to hear the entire arc of an album. I want to hear dark side of the moon from start to finish money is a great song, but I don't want to listen to money by itself. I want to hear the whole song cycle. And so with the wall, you know, 
Comfortably Numb is this iconic, great rock song with this amazing guitar solo from David Gilmour. But I don't want to hear that song by itself. I want to hear it within the entire context of of the album. And with something like The Wall, if you get if you're in that mode, man, it's a commitment because it's, as we've already said, it's a huge emotional wallop listening to it. And so if you're going to say, I'm going to take an hour, hour and a half to listen to The Wall in its entirety, um, you know, you're going to need you're going to need some time to recover when you're done because it always hits you so hard uh, when, when that story finishes. But yeah, it's, it's one of these things where the whole is absolutely greater than the sum of its parts. I, I absolutely agree. Especially this album. This album is one of the most emblematic of just a concept album that has to be listened to all the way through. And honestly, I find it kind of interesting the fact that some of these songs even did become hits because a lot of these songs are fairly dark and not really radio friendly. So it's kind of interesting to me that songs like Hey You or Comfortably Numb were songs that became a huge hit because it's not your typical love and happiness sort of sort of pop song. And I feel like in many ways, that's the exact reason they became a hit because I think uh, this is another point I had. I think Pink Floyd made some of the most classy, rebellious music ever made. They're not just like full-on part, uh, hard rock, you know, punk rock, metal. They're very, uh, I don't know, very delicate in the way that they put things, but it's is very rebellious. It's very going against the grain and, I guess, thinking, I guess, a, a little bit outside the box. And I respect Pink Floyd for doing that, and especially Roger Waters for the way he wrote his lyrics. I think, too, you know, when you talk about hits – um, you know, probably the uh, the biggest hit from the album would have been Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, which, you know, again, 1979, you're, you're kind of at the peak of the disco era. And so you have a song like that that has a, a very disco-esque um, kind of rhythm to it, which I'm sure uh, at the time there were probably a lot of Pink Floyd fans who heard that song and thought that Pink Floyd was selling out by creating oh, yeah. a song that had that, that type of beat to it. Um, I, I don't personally hear it that way it doesn't strike me as, as disco necessarily um but uh, it's still very interesting to, to see at that time that they would do something like that and i always find it fascinating to think about the genesis of the song where um you know roger waters hadn't designed the song necessarily to be um he didn't necessarily design it to be disco but he also didn't have the in, have the intention of having the school children singing on it and that was something that uh, producer bob ezrin uh, came up with uh and brought it to roger and just blew him away because when another brick in the wall part two was written it was just this minute long interval uh of music on the album uh and so the whole thing with the, the chorus of school children singing on it wasn't even something that roger or anyone from the band had even thought of and that's part of what makes that song so iconic is is those children singing on it if, if it wasn't for those voices um i don't think that we'd be we'd be talking about that song the, the way we do uh you know 40 years later okay so that's a great point kyle and i think what would be best if we just go through a list of all these songs here so let's start with the opening track the phenomenal opening track in the flesh um what are some of your guys' thoughts on this track well this track we see uh, definitely the pre-birth of our main character pink mm-hmm. um as as we hear about his father who was in in war and we're hearing a lot of the uh like war sounds 
um, and which ends with his birth. Um, just to, without specifically saying it, we already know a lot about his life and how he, what he was born into. Mm-hmm. He was born into this war era um, without having to talk about his father yet. Um, and just sets the tone for how his life might go following mm-hmm. this event. Mm-hmm. I think it's such a great opener, like, cause like you said, it sets the stage and I think it's, I think it's probably the hardest rock, more most rock song on the albums. They're most, I guess, heavy at that point. Um, they had done it in a long time. And I really like the lyrics, of course, as you know, always Pink Floyd lyrics are great. And I just think it really does set the stage, like you said. Kyle, do you have any thoughts? I think that something that's kind of interesting with this, a couple of things that I would say is, uh, is one you uh you've got the as the album begins the first thing that you hear is is that uh the cutoff of the spoken words in the background uh that kind of turns this album into this this cycle because you hear the voice that says uh the words where we came in which ties right into at the very end of the album after uh, at the end of uh, outside the wall where you hear the voice that says isn't this where so it all connects. It isn't this where we came in. The music that you're hearing in the background at the beginning of the song is is the is the strands of outside the wall uh, playing. And so, I've always struggled a little bit with that because I'm not sure that I necessarily feel like what's being implied here is like there's a cycle, is like it's a loop. I don't know that I necessarily see the story that way. Because I don't see it, it's like, oh, it's it's just going to go on and on in an endless cycle. Because that's what feels like it's implied the way that they've done that. I'd like to think that that was more of a just a creative, clever thing that they did, rather than actually implying that there's a cyclical thing happening here. Um, it doesn't. That doesn't feel like it makes sense. And and part of what makes me think that maybe that wasn't what was intended. It was just, aren't we clever? Is when you see the film of the wall, it doesn't even open with this song. It opens with uh, the song when the tigers broke free uh, and we see the death of Pink's father or Roger's father in the war. And so, you know, that's giving it a definite prelude. The film has a a real prelude to it by showing us that history uh, there. And so it's interesting that that's not a song that's on the album. They wrote it for the film. Um, but it, it's still one that I think is important to take into context with the story of, of the wall as a whole, because it is a great piece of music. Mm-hmm. Um, See, oh, now you said that, now you said that you felt that it, it seems strange that it's repeating. And I do agree with you. And I first thought that, but honestly, something that came to me actually while you were talking is more, what if, if this is more implying, not that it's going to happen again to our main character, Pink, but in a way such as like a child or something like that, as Pink was affected by his father, uh, his father's dying, and we see Pink, our character, living out a, a life where he's jaded. So the safe assumption would be that he probably would not be necessarily a great father. I mean, he hasn't really had a good father figure in his own life what if this is representing not necessarily the pink has this reoccurring story but that 
a future generation would. Um, obviously, that still would imply that then all of these events recur and what are the odds that pink's child also loses his father and insert all the rest of the the story but it could be more i i see it pointing towards that possibly because yes obviously it's not like he's going to be born again uh on our first track mm-hmm. i think i think that's certainly a valid interpretation uh, you're, you're going for more of an allegorical um you know interpretation of that and i think that's Absolutely valid. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a good point, Noah. You both have good uh, points there. So let's uh, let's move on to the thin ice. Um, I think this is another one of those sleep sleeper hits that I, uh, I've heard before. I don't know exactly where, but I definitely recognized the piano bit. And I, I really like that kind of like simplistic piano bit that was there kind of like laying the groundwork for this song. I, I think that it, it does a good job of kind of establishing, uh, in a, and again, in a metaphorical kind of way, we're talking about the, the thin ice. We're talking about the fragility of this, of the mental state of the psyche of this this character who's so close to a breakdown that he could fall through the thin ice. Uh, and to anchor that in in the beginning phases of the the piano that uh, that we hear from Rick Wright. Um, you know that that's a that's a nice touch there to to see. It starts out so delicate, but before the song ends, you get that you know the fury of the guitar as Gilmore comes in and uh, and with Nick Mason on drums there too. It's um, the chaos that he's really dealing with internally. Uh, we get a mix of that on this song to kind of set the stage for you know as this character turns the corner and, and really evolves into this tragic being i also love the sharp change that we have from like i said the airplanes and the and the gun sounds at, uh, near the end of in the flesh to a more lullaby sort of sound at the very beginning with gilmore singing uh, i think that that's a really interesting juxtaposition um of the innocence of early life. Um, is that all we have to say on this song? Yeah, it's a short one. It doesn't. Yeah, it's necessary for the narrative, but content-wise, it's it, it doesn't have much to discuss. Yeah. Uh, do you agree with that, Kyle? Yeah, and I and I really as we as we move on through the album, really the next the next three pieces are are kind of a, they're really more of a single unit. You know, oh, yeah. these, the next these next three songs kind of. Uh, are grouped together in such a way that it might as well just be one piece. So as we as we move into the you know part one of another brick in the wall, uh, and and we get into some of the um, what is the child uh, of Pink, the character of Pink, dealing with as the song opens with the the lyric, "Daddy's phone across the ocean." Um, you know, this is yeah. You have to ask. Well, yeah, we know that Dad went to war, um, but does he know that his his father has died necessarily or, or is this you know is, is it the story that his mother has said is oh daddy daddy went across the ocean uh as a way of saying maybe a, a child isn't mature enough to to deal yeah. with what it truly means yet uh, and as we see in the film for example when he's going through uh some drawers and he finds the scroll uh, uh that the uh, that was sent to his mother when his father was killed in the war and he kind of sees oh this is what really happened um we hear some of that innocence in this in this cycle of songs, uh, especially leading up to you know another brick in the wall part two. Again, it's all these school children singing, uh, and, and you know it's 
So I think as we consider these pieces here, you've got to put yourself in that childish mindset uh, because that's really who the who the narrator is at this point in the song cycle. Uh huh. So yeah, I think in my opinion, just to skim it over real quick, like another brick in the wall part one is I think is just a precursor for kind of things to come. It's another one. I think these first three tracks are very setting the stage tracks. They're uh, getting you, I guess, prepared for what is to come. Um, and like you said, the happiest days of our lives is just kind of like a continuation. I'm not exactly sure. And you might know about this, Kyle, since you seem very engrossed in the lore of the the creation process of this album and you know the conditions and stuff like that do you know why they chose to make it four separate tracks um i don't know that i've ever necessarily heard heard that i think that we know that waters had always envisioned this as a live uh performance so there's a number of things in here that he may have in his head seen you know okay we want to make certain transitions in the story in a visual sense when we're performing this on stage. So it may be that they wanted to have a little bit of an interlude there for them to be able to be doing some of the things like putting more bricks up in that giant wall behind them when they were playing live. Uh, there's, there's actually, uh, if you listen to the, the live version of the wall, um, is, is there anybody out there that the, the two disc live version, you'll hear, uh, uh, stretches of music that go on for a couple of minutes that aren't even in this in the studio album that exist entirely for the purpose of what's happening on the stage so that they have time to complete building the wall uh and so that's that's an interesting thing to hear when you listen to the live version because it's like well, where's this coming from this music is not on the album uh and that's why because they needed time to do other things on the stage yeah, I think it's very, uh, I guess, necessary to keep in mind that this is a rock opera. It's kind of, uh, it's not just the audio. There's a lot of visuals that were intended to be there. Um, Noah, I know, Kyle, you already said you have. Have you seen the movie? Uh, I have. I've seen both the theatrical and concert video. I've seen the concert video. I haven't seen the movie. The movie's actually on my list. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Let's talk about another brick in the wall part two. I think this is a very, I guess we already did kind of talk about this, didn't we? We did, but I do want to throw in a quick thought uh, with, with our trilogy of songs that we were talking about. Um, I think right here is when we start to see how vital it was that Roger Waters was the primary vocalist for this album. Um, I think that his more broken uh, form of oh, singing yeah. not not quite as crystal clear really really makes this album work um i, I just think that it, while gilmore has a great voice i think that roger waters and his different vocal style is what makes it because it sounds so broken and not not perfect as this story's obviously telling and again being such an autobiographical story i'm sure that david gilmore probably felt like it wasn't appropriate for him uh to, to sing as in the voice of pink and we don't hear very much of uh, of gilmore's voice on this album you know there's you have you have the parts we'll talk about later where he's singing on comfortably numb and earlier we had uh gilmore singing on um the thin ice but yeah it really is in, in more ways than one, most of this album is in Roger's voice. 
Yeah, and I, I, I agree. I was actually had that here. Get my mic a little bit closer. I, I agree with you, Noah. I was actually going to say that that his broken voice, um, while at many times it might not be the most accessible thing, might not be, be as pretty as maybe um, Gilmore's, I think it's very fitting that he play the voice of Pink, this broken character who's kind of very dire, reaching out for help. Um and I think he had a he had the perfect voice to play Pink in his character, and it's also fitting because he is the author of this story. He is the guy who wrote for Pink, and I think he's the true one who knows how to play the part the most. Okay, so let's uh, let's move on to Mother, and I think this is personally one of my favorite tracks from the band. I think it's very simple, but like by the time the drums and bass kick in, I'm already hooked, and I just love the way that that is orchestrated i think mother is a super underrated song on this album because it really does reveal a lot even just in the fact that whenever we have have the mother speaking um she always refers to herself as mama but whenever roger waters is referring to her it's mother showing a disconnect how they're not necessarily close just that small detail is a huge thing and setting the tone for this album. Yeah, and like on the... Oh, continue, Kyle. No, I was going to say, and uh, we didn't really talk about it on, on another Brick in the Wall part two, but um, this is one of the key characters in the story. Mother is one of the key characters. Uh, just like in another Brick in the Wall part two, the schoolmaster uh, is is another one of the key characters. So we're, we're, we're getting these character introductions uh, in these songs that are going to play such an important role in the larger story. So that's, you know, part of what's so important about this song here is that we're meeting mother for the first time and hearing, um, you know, in what kind of controlling domineering way she shaped uh, Pink's character in his youth and how that impacts him uh, as he grows older. Not only that, we also do have the fact that almost all the characters, um, outside of pink are played by Gilmore, which I do think sets a nice, uh, a nice balance uh, and shows it helps identify the different characters a lot better, um, which does come into play later, which I'll talk about near once we hit the end of the album. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I think Dave, this is one of the tracks. Pink Floyd has a very signature sound uh, with like, especially on like dark side of the moon, you can hear this same thing. And this theme has reoccurred the way that the drums, uh, the bass drum and the bass are working together has always been great. And I think it creates a very clear dynamic for where the song wants to go. And I think by the time that is used in this track, not only already hooked by the simple like guitar chords and stuff, but then when that comes in, I think, I think you guys can agree. You kind of get fully engrossed in the track and it actually comes in at a very crucial moment because you hear um, mama being very controlling saying, I'm going to keep you under your wing and you hear pink kind of asking her like, you know, can I, what's the right way to put it? Like, uh, is this girl good enough for me? Kind of trying asking her for advice and her not really thinking of like his best interest I guess, or maybe she is, but she's being very controlling and trying to make his life decisions for him. And I think it's 
played out very perfectly. Goodbye, Blue Sky. Um, I think this one, there's not much to say on it because I don't think it pulls the story. I don't think it helps the story like as much as the other tracks. Or maybe I'm missing something, but it's not as quintessential for the story. But man, is the guitar that just another simple guitar playing thing, but it's so pretty and so luscious. And it's a short burst of like sweetness that I think adds a lot to the experience of listening to this album. And it's also the, the you've got those gorgeous uh, vocals uh, on this song with David Gilmore, particularly in the end, the harmony vocals that he sings uh, near the end of the song, the, the, the title, the goodbye, blue sky, goodbye. Um, just gorgeous. It sounds just gorgeous. Oh, yeah. In contrast to what's about to come is, uh-huh. is the complete opposite of that. Uh-huh. Um, Noah, do you have anything to say on this track? Not really. And honestly, to segue into Empty Spaces, I don't have much to say with it either. Not to say that they're not essential to the album, but just mm-hmm. they're there to... to to show that we're going darker the the tone is becoming more dark um but neither song do i have much to say about yeah that brings up a great point that i wanted to make up uh noah you had a term that i i thought was very good in one of your videos i can't remember which review it was but tonal whiplash i think this album it's very i guess unique in its flow it's kind of gives you that tonal whiplash but in a good way like just like it's very um i guess representative of like uh, goodbye blue sky it's got this very pretty thing and then it kind of goes dark and very dire and um i guess earnest in some sense um and then it goes right back to the beautiful guitar lick and so i thought this is a perfect uh, like metaphor for what this album is i mean you got in the flesh and the thin ice um, and then you got another brick in the wall, which, while it has a dark subject matter, it does have a very clean, pristine sound to it. And I think it kind of throws you around, which really helps you uh, feel what Pink is feeling. You guys agree on that? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, absolutely. I, I see what you're saying. And I do think that that's even emblematic of just natural human nature of how we all have a front that we put on to some people. So everything might seem cheery to some people while. While in our personal lives, we're going through loss or addiction or whatever it may be. Uh, Kyle, do you have anything to say on this? I think that another thing that we got to take into context here is, is at the time, this was an album that was recorded predominantly for vinyl. Uh, and so it was something that they knew was going to have to be split up on album sides. So what you have with uh, Goodbye Blue Sky is essentially the first song on, on side two of the album. Uh, and so this is the second half uh, of, of, the, of the first LP. And so, you know, that, that, nece- that necessity uh, that they had for, well, we've got to split this up in these sensible ways uh, was going to impact uh, how these songs flowed. And I, I know from some of the, the research that I've done on this album, some of these songs did shift around in the song order. Mm-hmm because of those types of issues where they couldn't necessarily put certain songs in a certain order because of the way that album sides worked. And today with streaming or with CDs, you don't have a capacity issue anymore. And, and so it would be, it would have been really interesting to see what they would have done uh, had they not had to worry about having to limit themselves to 21, 22 minutes of 
music per side of an album. And so here, as we talk about Goodbye Blue Sky and how that segs into Empty Spaces, you know, here's another situation where they made an editorial change, uh, where Empty Spaces was not actually the song that was going to follow Goodbye Blue Sky. It was going to be uh, What Shall We Do Now, which is what you hear in the film. Uh, in the film version of, of this, it goes into a, a, a longer version, essentially, of Empty Spaces. Uh, Empty Spaces was supposed to be uh, a reprise, similar to how Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 and Part 3 were reprises. Uh, Empty Spaces was intent, intended to be a reprise to what shall we do now and then come up later in the song cycle but because of uh, having to fit things into album sides uh, they had to shuffle those around and if you look at the uh the liner notes of the vinyl for the pink floyd the wall uh it actually has the lyrics to what shall we do now listed on it because they made that change to the album so late in the production process that they couldn't switch that uh on the printed albums they'd already printed those uh, so I'm sure that confused a lot of fans when they first picked it up and they're like, wait, I'm reading lyrics that aren't on the album. What's going on? Uh, <laughs> Let's move on to uh, Young Lust. What I have written down for this is like for such a cheap subject matter, um, I think this, the melody and the music like composition is very classy, um, which is very in contrast to you know like what the lyrics are conveying and i i think the melody is just so killer and i love it and it's one of my favorite pink floyd tracks i don't know where you guys stand on it so you guys take over uh no or kyle you go first whichever one i i have a feeling that with, with young lust this might have been a song that that when david gilmore was working on the album he probably felt a little bit awkward because so much of it was so personal to roger uh, that here was an opportunity for David to take a song that was that had some swagger to it, had some you know some rock star kind of vibe to it. Uh, that, that he could say, "Hey, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take some ownership on this song." And so I, I really think that's what you hear here is is this is a song where David Gilmore gets to get up there and be be a sexy rock god uh-huh. and you know, play. It's it's kind of got a bluesy sort of riff to it. And I think that's right in Gilmore's wheelhouse. So I have a feeling that this was probably one of Gilmore's favorite tracks on the album for that reason. Mm-hmm. In in the context of the album, um, I think that this song really starts to show that we don't necessarily want to be pitying Pink. Because um, we do start to see a little more misogynistic ideals with mm-hmm. with ref- needing a dirty woman. Mm-hmm. Uh which which he further deals with in later songs, but I do think that this this starts to be a point where we can see that Pink is not necessarily a character we should all be sympathizing with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly, and we'll talk about it um, in the next song. I think one of my turns. Um, I think it's a very introspective track. One of my turns. It starts off with the uh, American girl. Um, you know, ah oh man, this room is so big. It's got so many guitars and you can just, I feel like the way that they executed this part was so great because like just hearing this girl talk, you almost like immediately assume her personality. 
I feel like, at least with me, once I heard her talk, you can just, without even hearing Pink, you can already tell he's kind of annoyed by her. He's kind of put off, and he's like, oh, man, I, you know, I used to love you, but I don't. And then he talks about it in that song. Um, what, what is the line? I have grown older and you have grown colder or something like that. I thought it was very introspective. I think that it, it, this is definitely, and again, it's an extension of, of Young Lust too, where um, he, keep in mind, he's singing at this point uh, the lyrics that you've just described. Uh, he's, he's singing about his wife uh, or, or, or maybe his girlfriend. It's hard to say which. I, I think it's it is wife actually because of course in the trial we have the wife, mm. um, but he's on the road as a rock star and so mm. the woman that you hear talking uh, the American woman that's talking in this song is a groupie you know she's a fan and so uh, again kind of jumping off of what I think you you guys have both said is Pink's not a hero he's not a good guy he's out there uh, he's become this rock star and he's doing you know all the disgusting things that rock stars do if he's you know taking drugs and getting drunk and sleeping with lots of women and that's what's happening here is that you have him taking part in that rock star excess where he's got this groupie that's invited back to the hotel room and while she's there he kind of gets all unhinged as he's thinking about his wife back home and ends up trashing the room uh so you know he's he's not a character i think i don't know that we sh- i don't want to say we shouldn't sympathize with him but he's not a good guy. He's certainly not at this point. Yeah, I missed. I thought that that was his girlfriend that he was talking to. I think that was a, I guess, mistress would be a term. But like, I thought I didn't. Mi- I missed that part of the story probably because I haven't seen the movie, which I needed to do, but I forgot. Um, anybody have anything to say about that? Nope. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then we have "Don't Leave Me Now." Um, which is one of the most emotional songs I think on this track. And now it has a new context (laughs) in light of me learning that he's, uh, I guess his life, his wife is leaving him because he cheated. Um, we know that she's no angel too, because you have the whole thing at the end of young lust that leads into one of my turns where he's trying to call home and the operator's trying to make the connection. And you hear her say, uh, you know, she keeps hanging up. There's a man answering. And so, you know, neither of them has, is, you know, being entirely uh, faithful to each other, but it's, these are, these are the bricks in the wall. These are some of the bricks that are leading to uh, the inevitable outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some weird way, it kind of like, like you said, Pink isn't a good guy, and I think I, at different times you start feeling for Pink. You're like, well, he was put in all these situations that led him to be not the best person ever, and it kind of messed him up. And then sometimes you're like, what a disgusting human. How could he be so misogynistic? And, you know, I feel it's another way that this album kind of throws you around, and it really does make you think and, and understand the character even more. These are very quintessential quintessential tracks for the album they need to be here well and to borrow your your phrase uh being thrown around i mean that's quite literally what what pink's mind is doing in don't leave me don't leave me now he's going from begging his wife to stay to lashing out at her mentally of course but to telling her that she's awful then back to hoping that she stays Mm -hmm. yeah it's a very uh 
weird, I guess, um, expedition taking, like, listening to this album, because you're trying to figure out, like, what's going on in the story as you listen, and it's, uh, like, you're trying to figure out the context and stuff, and it does definitely throw you around um, a lot, and you're really trying to... I guess understand what's going on, and you, in some way, since you don't understand, you see what Pink's going through through more objective eyes. I think. Uh, let's go into another brick in the wall part three. There's nothing really much to say on this, is there? I don't feel there's. I don't have necessarily much to say, but ironically, it's still probably my favorite part uh, from the another brick in the wall trilogy, um, just because there's such tension and urgency in in the music there's a lot of suspense and i do really like it it's probably my favorite of the three but that being said there's not really much to say yeah this is this is where you know it's it's not a long song so to speak um this is where he's coming to that conclusion right this is where he's realizing screw it i've, I've got all these these horrible things that are going on in my life and i don't i don't need any of that. I don't need arms around me. I don't need drugs to calm me. He's just like, I'm going to build the wall. I'm going to, I'm going to just lock myself in and build a wall around myself and cut myself off from the outside world. And so this is where, uh, in the live concert, uh, as, as another brick in the wall, part three is ending. Uh, this is where they insert this, suite of music for five or six minutes that recalls some of the, the musical themes of uh, the other songs that have come before because in the concert this is where they're putting those final bricks up in the wall uh, halfway through the album the wall is actually being completed and so that's what he's singing about here he's you know all of these things were bricks in the wall and so as we as we reach you know the final song on uh, disc one uh, of the album as we get into group goodbye cruel world here that's what he's saying is i've done it i've built the wall to close myself off from everything else and and so this final song now in goodbye cruel world is where he's saying you know see you guys i don't i don't need you anymore and, and this is where i'm going to be behind my wall yeah uh no do you have anything to say uh I goodbye cruel world just that final goodbye that he says is a completely like spine chilling moment because I mean that is like the completion of the wall um and it it perfectly ends uh disc one and I think it's just a very haunting moment and imagine being in that concert audience especially back in you know 1980 81 when they had those those first performances and watching them build this wall uh, over the first half of the concert and and waters singing this this song goodbye cruel world behind the, the the one last opening of that wall and as he says goodbye at the very end of the song they put that final brick in the wall and all the audience is left with is this massive massive wall across the stage there's no band there's nothing and you got to be, you know, scratching your head thinking, wow, that was amazing. But what happens next? Mm. Uh, and and it's, it's a really, it's a dramatic, dramatic way to, to kind of reach that, that midway point in this story. Okay, so we're going to talk about Hey You now. Um, and 
it's kind of a normie song in quotes. Um, but of course, I think we can all agree it's a pretty darn good song for a normie song. Um, and I think this is no, like you said, one of the spine chilling moments in the album. That opening line, I can't remember exactly. It's like, "Hey, you, uh, sitting out there in the cold, growing lonely, yeah, growing old." Yeah, I. Those lyrics are so. I guess well put, and the way that they're put is very spine chilling, um, and I really, I really like the way it makes me feel. It's kind of a like an indescribable emotion, but I do like the way it, it makes me feel. And there's so much irony in the fact that the that seconds after he finishes that wall, we instantly get him calling out, trying to to reach people on the outside world, kind of regretting that isolation that he's put himself in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Kyle, do you have anything to say? I agree uh, with that. You know, it's it's that that isolation that he's got to feel where he he puts that last brick in and has that that silence uh, and stillness and has to think, okay, uh, did I do the right thing? Is this going to work for me? Is this what's going to make me whole? Um, but what's also interesting is that um, while I think that that makes an important point in the song cycle they didn't include this song in the film version uh this Ah. is one of the the few songs that they actually did not put in the movie uh so for whatever reason they may they may not have felt like it uh it it contributed as much to the storyline in in the film format Mm. that's interesting because i think it contributes a lot to the story but i guess that's all we had to say on that anybody else have anything to say okay um is there anybody home um i don't think there's much to say on this uh song is there anybody home but um i think it just moves kind of the album along in a good way it's kind of a continuation of hey you it's his realization you know calling out to the outside world any guys any few guys have anything to say (laughs) no there's really not much to say at least for me no, I, I think you, what you've said, Sam, is exactly it, and that's maybe why Hey You wasn't included in the film, is that for this track, it's it's kind of touching on the same themes, but it's doing it in a much more uh, uh, succinct way. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, all the only lyric in the song is, is there anybody out there? Mm-hmm. And it's just repeated that way. Um, and, and, and ultimately, that's the meaning behind the entire song of Hey You. Mm-hmm. Hey, you is 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 basically boiled down to to this exact same sentiment. So, yeah. um, both of both of these things. In fact, most of what we we hear here, leading into uh, the beginning of disc two and, and what's would be side three on the album, we're at the beginning here of a really um, the, the this this batch of songs here on this this first half of uh, part two are all very mellow, very kind of depressing downer kinds of songs. Uh, so, you know, if we talk about the way that this album throws you around, we're in a really interesting place for the next several songs in this song cycle. So let's talk about nobody home. Uh, Kyle, you go first. Well, you know, here it's uh, as, as I think we've got pink is finally kind of isolated uh, and he's sort of taking a, a little bit of a personal inventory here and, and thinking, all right, 
what am, what am I left with if I'm if I built this wall around myself? Uh, and and that's what you kind of hear in these lyrics as the song opens. I've got a little black book with my poems in. Oh yeah, got a bag with a toothbrush and my comb in. I mean, he's like, well, let's see what here I am behind my wall, and I don't have a whole lot. Do I have enough to to get by? Um, and, and so it's it's kind of you know. As, as he's starting to come to terms with what that isolation means, uh, is this truly what he wanted, uh, or is this is this going to be something that's going to lead him further into madness? Mm. Mm. Uh, no, do you have anything to say? I think Kyle put it perfectly. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kyle, you guys are both doing a good job taking the words right out of my mouth a lot of the time. <laughs> okay, um, let's move on to Vera. Who wants to go first? Well, I, I actually want to hear you guys' thoughts because Vera and Bring the Boys Back Home are kind of random in the narrative. I, I yeah. have my own thoughts, but I kind of want to know what you all think about these two tracks and their inclusion. Um, I don't really have much to say other than just kind of like I like the main line of Vera, what has become of you. Um, I haven't watched the movie, and in many ways, I'm not as familiar as you guys um, with the storyline, per se, because I haven't watched the movie. But, uh, Kyle, can you uh, <laughs> enlighten me since you seem to know a lot about the story? Well, so I think when we're when we're looking at Vera in particular, so, of course, as he says, does anybody here remember Vera Lynn? And Vera Lynn was this, this wartime singer. Um, and so, you know, she was somebody who uh, would have been very popular on, on the radio during, during the 40s. And... And so if you grew up in that period, you would have known that voice and she would have had so many songs that, that would have, um, you know, meant so much to people. And so as the movie uh, actually opens, uh, you can hear in the background of Vera Lynn's song playing. And that's a song called The Little Boy That Santa Claus Forgot. And that's the song that Pink has on the radio in the very, very beginning of the film as he's reminiscing uh, about what happened to his father. And we see those opening scenes in the film uh, where his father was killed. Um, so what we have here at this stage is, is a, doing a similar thing. It's, uh, you know, remembering Vera Lynn and, and what what would her voice have meant to his father when his father was was his age because at this point uh, in the narrative pink is probably about the age that his father was uh, when he died uh and so you know kind of putting himself in his father's shoes to say what kind of man would my would my dad have been what would he have been thinking about what music would he have been listening to what well, he would have been listening to vera lynn uh and and then songs like what comes next would bring the boys back home again these anthems that that people were were singing and the, 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 the what they were feeling was we want the troops to come home. We want uh, our loved ones to come home safe and for people to stop dying in the war. Uh, and so again, this is, this is pink now in isolation, thinking about all of those things that, that have contributed to um, his, his mindset. And that's that, a, oh, continue, Noah. <laughs> that's a really interesting uh, interpretation. I, I hadn't, hadn't thought of it that way my i mean i feel like my my interpretation is could go along with it but i actually really like um what you thought about it to me both of the songs um i mean obviously they were talking about the the war and so i did assume that they coincide with his father's death um but i also kind of saw it as like the 
the ravings of a madman who's stuck in this hotel room, who's not had that like communication with people and just his insanity and how, and that's why he took these more uh, different approaches in the narrative in that he was just grasping at things to think about and in the context of real life seeing about. Um, but I, I think Kyle, you probably hit much more on the head than I was. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're, you're, making a great point though you're you're absolutely valid on that because again he's he's built this wall he's in isolation uh as we'll hear him sing about later and when you have nothing but your own thoughts and and you know that can be maddening in and of itself uh he's he's imprisoned himself and all he has has is, is all these things to think about uh and so yeah it's i think that's an absolutely valid way to look at it um, and then that, like, kind of, I guess, bring the boys back home is very in the same vein as Vera. Um, what you said with the story kind of puts it in context for me why these songs are here. Because, like Noah said, they've always seemed like a little bit of an outlier, and they are. It's kind of like Pink uh, remembering old times and reflecting back on what his past was, and so they. I guess to us, they will seem a little bit like outliers, but it's one of those things. It's, it's a recurring thing that I'm talking about. It's just kind of throwing you around. Um, and you're living through, I guess, the same kind of mindset that Pink is living in. He's confused. Um, and he's just kind of scatterbrained almost uh, in many situations is what I've uh, thought is he's kind of discovering things, but he's being very scatterbrained with how he does it. So this this track is another one of these uh, tracks where he's, I guess, kind of reminiscing. Okay, let's move on to Comfortably Numb. Dum, dum, dum. Uh, this is, in my opinion, a quintessential rock song. I think by many, uh, one of the greatest songs of all time, in many people's opinion. Um, I think it has great lyrics. Obviously, there's tons of stuff that's been said the solo is of course great we've all heard that a bunch so um do you guys have anything new to say on it uh Noah, you go first <laughs> um really the only thing that i have to say is that i always found it kind of strange the whole like doctors coming in and tranquilizing him uh practically but through research in this album that's actually something that happened to him uh like two years before the release of this album, which uh, I, it was just something that I always found kind of strange, just a little, a little creative licensing that seemed a little out of the ordinary, but apparently it was based in reality, which is, which was super interested, interesting to me. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, it's kind of another outlier to the story, but it is another reflective track. I think, um, Kyle, do you have anything to say? Well, the working title for this song was originally The Doctor. Uh, so it was, I think that they, the, the Waters kind of saw The Doctors maybe being yet another character uh, in the story. And so I think that what you have happening here is we, we know that what Pink has done is he's he's built up this tremendous success as this, this rock star and and with that success has come all this, you know, madness as well. And so he believes that he can just wall himself off 
from that and, and, and that he'll be okay then. But the truth of the matter is he's built this machine, you know, he's built this career and so many other people are, are a, a part of that are, 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 you know, I don't want to use bricks in the wall, but cogs in the machine. And I think that's what's happening here in comfortably numb is they're coming along and saying, look, dude, you've still got to be a rock star and we're going to, if we have to give you some drugs to to help you keep keep going here, then that's what we're going to do. Just a little pinprick, and you know it, what what Pink is going to discover here is the wall isn't isn't solving his problems. He's got to keep moving. He's got to keep being uh, Pink, the the mega rock star. Uh, and and this song is that turning of the corner uh, into you know, the full-on bombast of this, you know, stadium-filling uh, Nazi-esque character that Pink uh, becomes. But I think Comfortably Numb is where uh, he, he really, it's the catalyst for that. It's, no, no, you can't just isolate yourself. You built this, you have to deal with the consequences now. Uh, and, and so that, that's what Comfortably Numb is. It's the doctor and the others coming in and saying, no, dude, you, you don't get to escape. You have to deal with this and you've got to keep going. And, and that leads us right into, of course, uh, the next the next song, which uh, you know, is The Show Must Go On. Yeah, The Show yeah. Must Go On. Or um, uh, Should The Show Go On? Uh, that was bad. Anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, anybody else have to say anything on Comfortably Numb? No, but I do think that it, it that the conversation that we were talking about about him getting drugged, uh, I mean, it, it leads perfectly. And I think the next three tracks are another three that kind of fit perfectly together. Like they're three that kind of need to be talked about all together because we start with the show we must go on, which is him him preparing to take the stage for as as Kyle said this Nazi-esque uh, performance mm -hmm. um, so yeah let's move on to the show must go, go on um, so I think it's a pretty phenomenal track maybe not the best song in terms of like writing on it it's not a bad song it's not the I don't think it's musically as captivating as a lot of other hits but I think I think it does a lot for the album because he's kind of the way I see it. Um, and what I found out is you guys see a lot of things different, which is great for conversation. But the way I see it is he's like, you know, should I keep doing this? Like, what is going on with my life? And he's in yet another track where he's trying to figure out what's going on around him and what's going on within him. Uh, Kyle, you go first. Well, yeah, I think that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's that catalyst. It's am I gonna am I gonna go on? Uh, am I gonna embrace that that rock star thing? Um, have I made the right choice here? Uh, what do I do next? Must the show go on? Uh, and you know, really kind of struggling with that madness. And in the end, it's the madness that wins. Is is that character? Um, you know, goes full on uh, into this. You know we keep using that word that nazi-esque uh kind of thing um that what he becomes he's he's fully embracing the madness uh, uh shortly after another point to make too is this song doesn't appear in the film either 
Oh, it doesn't. No, the film goes comfortably down right into uh, In the Flesh. Let's talk about In the Flesh. Um, Kyle, you go first. Well, In the Flesh is really... um, I think that when you look at how the album opens with the um, the question mark version of In the Flesh, um, you get that foreshadowing that takes place there. Um, and even though we've heard the, the musical theme already at the very beginning of the album, uh, if you've never heard this album before, you really have no idea how far it's going to go. Uh, and so the the pink that we hear uh, on, on In the Flesh here at this stage of the album is just so over the top and so um, just insane. Uh, and all of the things that he's uh, suggesting as he's calling out um, people in the theater that to, to get them up against the wall and um, you know, who let all this riffraff into the room. Um, it's obviously, uh, and he's got to make it a little bit over the top and, and, and comical because uh, you can't have, you can't have a, a record come out where all, all the guy does is sing an entire song about killing Jews. <laughs> yeah. he, he's, he's an equal opportunity offender on this song. Uh-huh. He wants to kill, he wants to kill the, 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 the potheads and the Jews and the queers. And he, he's, you know, any, anybody and everybody let's get him up against the wall. Yeah. And so, you know, he's, he's just gone, gone completely mad at this point. Uh, and he's just so drunk with, the power that comes with celebrity. And again, remember, he's still trying to determine how do I make sense of my life? And here he's full on embraced this persona, uh, which is absolutely the wrong way to go as we'll, as we'll learn uh, as the album comes to a close shortly after. Mm-hmm. Um, Noah, do you have anything to say? Not really. I mean, Kyle said, said it all for me. This is, pink showing a completely unfiltered personality um which obviously is is fairly uh dictatorial so um yeah no kyle said it perfectly yeah um and this is like it's it's this is where the album like it kind of brings out the darkness of the album while a lot of these songs like coming up they don't sound too dark um sonically their meaning is very dark and that leads right into a run like hell. One of my favorite tracks of the album. It's a very fun track. I love the way it starts. Um, it's, but it's again, got a very dark meaning. It's, I think this, this, this album was made in 79, uh, or at least released in 79. So I think it had a lot of influence on the music. I was going to come in the eighties. It's very got a, what's the right way. It's, that guitar riff has a very um, stadium sound. It's got a lot of reverb on it. And so I think it, it does a great job of just making a pretty song, but with a very dark meaning. This is absolutely, like you said, it's a stadium song. Um, and I was fortunate enough to see Pink Floyd live uh, back in 1994, I believe. And they were at Soldier Field. I mean, this is where the Chicago Bears play. So a massive, massive stadium. And when they play this song, um, those that, that echoey guitar riff as the, as the song begins is in surround sound. And you hear it bouncing off of 
you know, four different areas of the stadium. And it's just so awe-inspiring and, and all-encompassing. And that goes perfectly with the theme of what this is. And again, when you see it in the film too, he's basically raising an army of his fans. They, they become this militaristic, uh, rabid, batch of fans who are going to carry out his sick will mm -hmm. uh, all the things that he he was um you know rallying on about uh and in the flesh now on run like hell he's empowered his fans to go out there and to carry out his his dark wishes uh and and so i think another thing that's interesting is as you look at the lyrics of this song is think about the impact that his mother had on him and the way that we heard her being so controlling about his his you know his life in the song mother we're hearing very similar themes in run like hell this is like it's his mother coming out of out of pink uh so it, it really helps to bring it all full circle where ah now i see what that type of mother does to someone as they as they grow up they become someone who wants to be all controlling and deciding who you're going to, are you going to take your girlfriend out tonight and all of that. So um, yeah, there's, there's definitely some darkness uh, underneath this song for sure. And uh, one of the things I want to point out is I just love the way that kick works with that baseline. It's a kind of like the staple of the Floyd, um, the way they are put together and it just creates a very, I guess, dynamic song. Uh, Noah, do you have anything to say on this song? Uh, I think uh, everything you guys said was perfect. I, I will add, and I'll kind of take the liberty to move on to Waiting for the Worms. Uh -huh. um, we do see him starting to turn, or not starting, he has turned into the the force that that is the reason his father's dead. The 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 war and and, and not corrupt. The, what am I looking for here? Um, uh, I don't know. The, violent, the yeah, the the violent war and power that that killed his father is now what Pink has become. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like this is a great way of um him saying, you know, I guess kind of like becoming uh what shaped him his father's death because of that his mother's his mother being controlling um just he's got kind of got bitter because of his whole situation with his wife and stuff and then he built the wall and he comes out and he's like a different person um and he's everything has just shaped him and it's one way that you can feel for the character but it has created this sick monster who's corrupted um in the way like his any character he had before is now been shattered um and now he's kind of becoming misogynistic and um what's what's the word like a sociopath kind of thing controlling people um and i feel it's another very quintessential track to the record so let's uh move on to waiting on the worms um, I don't have much to say on this song, but you guys might. I have nothing. Well, it, it is just, it's just what run like hell and in the flesh. It's just furthering that, mm -hmm. that narrative to me, at least. 
Yeah, it is. And it's uh, Sam, you used the perfect word for what he's become. And that's the sociopath. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, and as horrible of a, of a creature as pink has become at this point in the story. Um, you know, I think that what you're also seeing, of course, and, and you see it very vividly in the film version mm-hmm. is he has this army of followers, no matter how, you know, dark your will and, 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 and evil your plans, um, there's always going to be some segment of people who think like you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what Pink has found. He's built up this army of, of followers. But the truth of the matter is, the world's not going to go along with it. And that's what's about to happen is, is as Pink sees what he's become and, and what, uh, what he has empowered his followers to do in his name, um, he's he gets to a point where he realizes that this is not good, mm-hmm. and and that's where we're going to lead into the next song is stop, mm-hmm. where uh, Pink finally 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 breaks and and maybe at, at the as, as he witnesses what he's become and how that's translated into something that has mutated in his fan base and and he says no no this isn't right this has got to stop but the problem is he's already done it he's taken it too far Uh, and and now there's going to have to be a consequence that he's going to have to pay for that uh, regardless of whether or not he says stop uh it's too late now Mm -hmm. yeah um noah what do you have to say on stop or any of the world that I mean, that's that's all that can be said. I mean, it, it's just that he did realize that that he went too far, and he's he's pushed it, um, and just now he's starting to realize that he may be guilty for for his own crimes. Mm-hmm. The trial. Well, what do we have to say on that one? There's definitely a lot to unpack, and I'll keep my thoughts brief so I give you guys time to time to talk about it. But I do find it super fascinating that we hear all the characters um, being voiced by Pink because, I mean, this is all in his head. We no longer have have actual characters that are speaking to Pink. It's all Pink and in his own mind. Um and I think that that it's a really good touch that does add a necessary uh, layer to the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I almost just turned off my power, which was would have been very bad. Let me move this out later. Real quick. <laughs> that would have been bad. <laughs> it would just stop the stream, and then I'd have to get in the call. We'd have to continue our thoughts. <laughs> um, so outside the wall, uh, what do we have to say on this one? Well, let's let's finish up on on the trial. Oh, yeah, right. I to, forgot um, being new to the trial. Um, I think that uh, you know, again, like like Noah was saying, it's really interesting now to see this cast of characters come together, all of them voiced by Pink. Um, you know, you've got the schoolmaster is is called as a witness, and you've got the mother, and you've got the wife, and all of these people who who um, had a very overbearing influence on Pink and and shaped him into the character that he became. And I think what's really interesting about the trial is that Pink is the one that's on trial. But when you really look at, uh, uh, you know, you hear these characters singing in this song, um, they're not necessarily good, quote unquote, 
um, people either. And so while it's pink that's on trial and it's pink that's going to have to pay the, the consequences here, you can kind of, I hate to say be sympathetic, but you can see how he got to this point if mm-hmm. these were the mm-hmm. most uh, influential uh, uh, you know, people that he grew up with who wouldn't end up being so warped and so deranged uh, when and you had this maniacal schoolmaster and controlling uh, mother and uh, the unfaithful wife. Um, is it any wonder that Pink ended up uh, going down this spiral of madness? Yeah, I think just like you said, it, and as I said earlier, it's kind of like maybe at points you do kind of feel a little bit sympathetic. Sometimes you don't. Um, but you definitely understand how this character has been shaped. Like it's very clear uh, that he was surrounded by all these people and all these experiences just shaped him. They built a wall almost like seemingly around him, even though he left um, like isolation, he came out a different person that, and like he, he's completely changed and, it doesn't i feel like a lot of people don't take the album i think a lot of people take the album as like you know kind of people are um you know the mom helped shape this this person and it's just this guy going through this life and a lot of people don't realize the like that what the actual story is is that you know pink committed like almost genocide <laughs> um in, a, in many different ways and like he became a very dark twisted person very hitler-esque um and over time we see why and we also see what the effects of it were so in a, many ways it's kind of like a warning to i guess check ourselves in our own lives yeah absolutely uh, i uh and another reason to bounce off what you guys said that because uh, previously I said that I didn't really sympathize with Pink's character. Um, and another reason is because all of these depictions um, in the trial of these characters are through his point of view. Um, and while I do, th- uh, like we see, obviously, like the schoolmaster was was abusive and mm-hmm. and we do see that these were negative people in his life i also think that these characters that are playing in the trial um are hyper exaggerated versions of what pink saw through his his psyche mm-hmm. yeah definitely uh kyle do you have anything to say I think that the the hyper exaggeration is a great point, and, uh, and and two, when you listen to the music itself, it's it's done in such a um, operatic uh, style. It's not a rock song, really, right? It's 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 done in a very um, uh, classical musicy type of way. Uh, almost, you get a little bit of a circus vibe to, to the way that the music is uh, composed here. Uh, and I think that's absolutely intentional, where it's to to show, you know, that Pink has descended into madness, and and so would the trial be just as much of a, uh, a, 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 a illustration mm-hmm. uh, of the madness that he's 
that he's given into. And, and we see it all in the, whether, whether you've seen the film or not, the album art has all these caricatures of these characters that are so gruesome looking. Uh, and that goes right in line with this. It's this, you know, extreme characterizations of these characters uh, that we hear on, on the album and Pink voicing them in the trial and the way that we see them illustrated in the album art uh, and then in the concert where you've got the giant inflatables uh, that play these characters. Um, it's, it's, it, it all plays into the madness uh, factor of, of what Pink has become. Uh, rather than being hyper-realistic, it's just completely insane at that point. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think this is a very, kind of like a lot of Pink Floyd's albums, um, it's a very kind of like almost like psychedelic experience. Um, it kind of throws you around. There's weird bits in it, like uh, Empty Spaces has some weird things going on. That I think at points you can't quite understand, kind of like in... Uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, which maybe we'll talk about later down the road of this podcast, maybe. Um, but like, what's that? What's the one track? I can't think of the name. It's right after Breathe. Um, you, it's it's the one where it's on got the run. on the run. Yeah, it's kind of like this weird thing, kind of like a trip, almost in my opinion. And it, I. It's kind of another signature of Pink Floyd. They kind of had some weird ideas flowing, and they used them in a very weird way. Um, so that closes up, I guess, the track listing. And to close off this episode, since we've been kind of going for a while, um, let's all talk about like just any things that we missed um, that we want to talk about. Just kind of the music. We talked a lot about the story. Um, I have something like my thoughts written down. So if you guys have any uh, things you want to say to close off your thoughts on this album, feel free to do that. And then I'll do mine. Uh, Kyle, you can go first. I think that um, within the, within the hierarchy of all of Pink Floyd's albums, um, I, I, Sam, I think I probably agree with you, what you said uh, very early on, which is that, um, you know, maybe this is your favorite Pink Floyd album. It's not my favorite Pink Floyd album, mm -hmm. but uh, within the cycle of all of their albums and the story of the of the breakdown of what was happening with the band, um, you can totally see where creating something like this that's so personal uh, to Roger would lead to kind of the the band kind of breaking up. Mm -hmm. um, they did still do the final cut uh, with uh, the Roger Waters still in Pink Floyd after this, but the final cut's really very much an extension of, of the wall. It's, oh, it's yeah. practically a sequel to the wall. Uh, and I can totally see, and, and the title of that album is the final cut, a Requiem for the post-war dream by Roger Waters. I mean, that's the title of the album. And, you know, I can imagine that at that point, Gilmore and, and Wright, Mason were probably like, okay, something's got to give. And when Waters left the group at that point, they were probably in many ways relieved because what would have happened if Roger Waters would have stayed with that band after the final yeah. cut? It wouldn't have been a band anymore. It would have just been Roger Waters solo. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, even when he wrote The Wall, he came to the band and said, hey, guys, I've been working, I've been working on the new album. 
and I've got two ideas. You can pick which one you think is the right one. And he brought them the wall and he brought them the pros and cons of hitchhiking, which was his, was would ultimately become Roger Waters' first solo album. So, you know, again, very much like Pink, at this stage in Pink Floyd's lifespan, Roger Waters was very controlling and, and, and wanting to call all the shots. Uh, so I think it was inevitable that um, that he was going to have to leave if that band was going to continue uh, to continue on. Have you guys ever listened to the Division Bell? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, just quickly, did you guys enjoy that album? Uh, Noah, you go first. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't really. It's been a while since I've revisited it, um, so I don't have any fresh input on it. Um, but listening through it yes I, I have always enjoyed it how about you kyle i'm not a huge fan uh of the division bell it's it's not one that i revisit very often um i think that after waters left the group the version of pink floyd that continued on without him um feels very different uh and in and, and so many of the ways that what we hear on the wall and on the final cut feels like it's Roger Waters. To me, a momentary lapse of reason and Division Bell feels like David Gilmore. Uh-huh. And if you listen to Gilmore's solo albums that he released uh, uh, after uh, Division Bell, uh-huh. what if you go to listen to On an Island um, uh, and... Uh, Self-titled. Uh, well, I, I, he was doing some more rocky, bluesy stuff on the self-titled. But I'm talking the later stuff that Albie put out a couple of years ago, and uh, are very much more in that vein. So I'm not as big a fan of that stuff, uh, but it doesn't sound like Pink Floyd as much to me. Yeah, I've I actually really enjoyed it. I thought there wasn't as good, like there wasn't as strong of songwriting on it, but I definitely did like the atmosphere because I've always liked. I think the way the part of Pink Floyd that is more David Gilmore's. I really like his voice. I really like the way he uh, his guitar tones. Um, like uh, that song "Pulls Apart" is a great track in my opinion. I like the way that that's executed, um, and it does have a. It's almost like that whole album is very in the same vein as um, "Comfortably Numb" is. Oh, uh, what's that? One track, uh, Wearing the Inside Out, does kind of sound very similar in format to uh, Comfortably Numb. Um, It's kind of got a very clear path that part of Comfortably Numb was uh, David Gilmore and part of it was um, Roger Waters. And I think that's why it's such a great song. But we don't need to really talk about uh, the Division Bell on the Wall episode. So... uh, Noah, do you have any closing thoughts for the wall? Well, uh, I mean, as I said at the top of the episode, I, I, for me personally, this is my favorite Pink Floyd album. Not to discredit any of the other great albums that they have, but I've just always been so involved in this narrative. And the ultimate question is of whether we show whether there are redeemable qualities in Pink or not. Um, I, I've just always found that this is super interesting. And I, looking back at what I said, I know I didn't necessarily talk much about the music in this album. Um, but I think that the whole album has such great instrumentation, something that we already come to expect with, with Pink Floyd. The thing that really stands out to me is the narrative. And that's why it's what I focused on quite a bit more. I think 
in a good way, the music does take kind of a backseat while it is great to the, um, the lyrics. Roger Waters wrote the narrative before he heard the music. So I think, I think it's, uh, a very good album. Um, and what I have written down is the album has a very like eclectic mixture of sounds. It's got some of those blues type riffs on young lust. It's got, um, you know the disco stuff a little bit on another brick in the wall it's just got a bunch of different genre blends which has been very influential not only on me but tons of people um i think like while these sounds do kind of seem like thrown together in some sense it doesn't hurt the album i don't think it's a negative i think in many ways as i said before i don't want to you know harp on it too much but it does put you in the same mindset uh through pink's eyes and i think like every instrument does exactly what it needs to do the drums are always very simple um but very holding the beat exactly and creating that atmosphere with the uh, correlation between the kick drum and the bass. Um, And then it it just, the guitar has the right punch to it. Every note is perfect. It's right where it needs to be. And uh, like I said before, uh, the bass is phenomenal. And I think like Noah said before, um, Roger Waters voice is perfect for many parts and David Gilmore's part, uh, voice is perfect for all the other parts so i think it's a very immersive album do you guys agree that's an immersive album absolutely mm-hmm. uh, uh kyle you <laughs> yeah for sure i mean almost like I, I think i alluded to before it's so immersive that uh by the time you're done listening to it you kind of you kind of need to take a break from the world for a minute and recover from it yeah <laughs> yeah um and like, if I had three words to describe this album, it's kind of like catchy, complete, and immersive uh, in many senses. Do you guys agree with those three words? Yeah, uh, Kyle, yeah. you go first. Yeah, yeah. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I keep forgetting to say one of you go first, so we don't interrupt yeah, each fine. other. <laughs> I gotta get used to that. Um. Uh. So yeah, that was it for the episode on the wall. Thank you, guys. Um, thank you guys for watching and thank you to Kyle and Noah for joining me today and talking about this great classic influential album with me. Um, yeah. So, uh, you guys, uh, Kyle, you go first and then Noah, um, shout your stuff out and tell people where they can find you. Sure thing. Well, Sam, thanks for putting this together today. Uh, uh, it's always great to talk about Pink Floyd, and I've done that on multiple occasions uh, on, on my channel, which is Track by Track. You can find that on uh, YouTube at Track X Track. Uh, just search for that. You should find my channel. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at uh, Track X Track. Uh, so connect with me there, and uh, I love, love talking music with you guys and, and with the, uh, all the viewers out there as well. Mm-hmm. Noah? Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having us on. It's been a great time. I, I I do not get to talk about Pink Floyd as much because they're not making any new music. I did luckily get to talk about Roger Waters last year, but besides that, hadn't got a chance. So it's been really, really enjoyable to discuss one of my favorite albums. Um, you can find me on Twitter at SMEB Reviews. Uh, same for YouTube, SMEB Reviews. Um, uh, besides that, I... 
I had a great time. And my final thought is that I really think Pink Floyd made the right decision in choosing this over the pros and cons of hitchhiking. <laughs> Amen. Can we all say that? I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, this is, I think in many ways, their final, just as the last thing, this is kind of like, I think this is the final Pink Floyd album as a dynamic group, even though they had, what, three more albums? They had um, the final cut, uh, uh, Momentary Lapse in Reason, and The Division Bell. Each of those albums were highlighting a different uh, character as when we had the run of Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, Animals, and now um, The Wall. It was other people kind of, um, you know, pitching in and helping. All the different members were kind of evened out a little bit more than um, the last three records. But, yeah, um, you guys can find me at me, Sam Bennett, here talking. Uh, YouTube Sam Bennett um, and then on all the socials Facebook Instagram and Twitter at Sam Bennett YT um, so yeah thanks guys for watching and we'll have a new episode sometime on Friday next week so uh, yeah thanks guys for joining us and we'll see you next time on the Criticast and to quickly end the show off I just want to say thank you guys for watching once again as I already said real quickly before and i want to tell you guys where you can find us you can find us uh here where you're probably listening or watching it on youtube or on anchor so all new episodes every friday will be coming out there then you can also find us on twitter and instagram actually on twitter it's criticast pod and on instagram it's criticast podcast in full and then i think on facebook it's criticast podcast yeah and then we have a website that link is in the description and you can go support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Criticast Podcast. Uh, yeah, Criticast. I think it's just Criticast. So all those links are in the description. Um, you don't really have to support us on Patreon. We are just starting. and But sometimes it is hard to start a podcast. So if you feel like you want to, we have some cool rewards up there. And, yeah, you can go help us out for a couple bucks a month. And... Yeah, all the money will be going into the podcast, and any leftover will uh, be split evenly. So, yeah, go help us out like that. Well, we'll see you guys next time on Criticast. That outro is cringy. I need to stop the camera.